Satan hates what we were just doing. He hates it. Hates it. And God loves it. And I love that song that Walt wrote. It is a song that affirms fundamental truths of our faith in Christ and what it produces in us and what our lives are all about. It's, it's a song of commitment, uh, pressing on to the upward call. It's a countercultural dagger in the heart. Hey, Walt. Um, you're not in your usual seat. Did you, you, you didn't ask permission to move or anything. You just moved. Were you guys in his seat? Maybe you should move for Walt and Syria. I'm all thrown off here. Um, um, where was I before, before Walt rudely interrupted me? Yes. Um, <laughs> Satan hates what we were just doing. I love that song. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to God. It's a, an affirmation we're preaching to ourselves who we are and who God is and who Jesus is for us. We're declaring that in the context of the congregation publicly. Satan hates what we were just doing. And there's nothing he wants you to believe more than that you are your own. We were just saying, I'm not my own. You want to talk about something that just goes right at the heart of what could be arguably the most treasured value of our society and of the human heart and of the human condition for all of humanity that we don't belong to ourselves I I don't own myself I didn't create myself I'm not keeping myself going I don't answer just to myself I answer to the one who made me That is an incredibly difficult thing for us to not just believe, but learn to love and live out of. And that's the goal of our message this morning. We are not our own. We are his by creation. We're his by redemption. And that is the absolute best way to think, the best way to live. And anything short of believing that we are not our own, but we belong to God, will be a miserable failure. Even if it feels good for a while. And so, would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we think together about what it means to not be our own, but to belong to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we'll go. we'll go. I am so aware that this will require a miracle for us to really move in the direction of God thinking on this. Even those of us who've been walking with Jesus a long time need to hear from the Lord that we're not our own. We still battle this every day of our lives. So let me pray as we go to God's word in 1 Corinthians 6. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to hear from you. I pray that our stony hearts would be tilled and receptive soil. I pray that our defenses, our assumptions, our presuppositions, the cultural messages and slogans we've absorbed would be critiqued under the light of your word and that we would kick over idols and find true freedom and true intimacy and true fulfillment in you 
and your ways for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll begin reading at verse 11. After listing a list of sins, Paul says to the Corinthians, and to those of us here this morning who've trusted Jesus and are new creatures in Christ, this is what he's saying to you as well. And such were some of you. Were, not anymore. No longer are you sexually immoral or deceived or idolaters or adulterers or, or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers, those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. No, such were some of you. Don't forget it. Don't forget it or you may get proud. You may forget what you've been saved from. You were those things, but you were washed. You were dirty, now you're clean. You were guilty, now you're forgiven. You were sanctified. You were unholy, now you are holy, set apart for God. You were justified. These are accomplished facts and realities for the believer in Jesus. You were justified. You were made in perfect alignment with God's moral law because of the righteousness of Jesus. And this happened all because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did for us, and by the Spirit of our God. That was accomplished for us. And now we go into our passage this morning framing it, grounding it in who we are in Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, I am so glad you're here. You may think you're a Christian and you're not, and I'm really glad you're here. You may be a Christian and you need to hear this passage just as much as anybody. But you need to realize there is a radical difference between living life in Christ and living life outside of Christ. And this description I just read is for those who have turned from their sin and trusted Jesus and Jesus alone to save them from sure judgment and hell. And if that's you, if you're a new creature in Christ, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Jesus did that. It's accomplished. And now the Apostle Paul will start to address to the Corinthians and to us some wrong implications you could draw from that. And he goes to a couple of slogans, cliches that have obviously been being used to abuse the truth. And I think the ones in quotation marks are not what Paul's saying, but ways people have been justifying their sin. All things are lawful for me. They might even be quoting Paul, but then using it in a way that is leading to what we would call cheap grace. Oh, I'm forgiven so I can do whatever I want. I'm heading to heaven so I can live like hell. And that is not the implication of being saved by grace through faith. And so Paul is correcting a cliche. That's why at least the ESV and other, other, most other translations have that in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. Paul's quoting a way people started to talk to justify their sin. But not all things are helpful, Paul corrects. Oh yes, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not what we do, so no one can boast. But please don't think then you can live 
with no attention to God's ways. No, you're saved to live according to his ways. And so not everything is helpful. All things are lawful for me. But then Paul says, but I won't be dominated by anything. You think you're so free and living however you want, but you're actually imprisoned by that sin. And you're free. If you're a child of God, you're free. He starts off this letter amazingly telling these people who've got, who've, who've got incest and drunkenness, people coming drunk to the Lord's Supper, horrible factions, superficiality. He says, I thank my God in every remembrance of you because I know the grace of God is at work within you. And he calls them to something higher and something so much better. I won't be dominated by anything. And then he quotes another slogan that's being used these days to justify sexual immorality. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Apparently saying similarly, the body's meant for sex and sex for the body. So eat whatever you want and have sex with whomever you'd like, whenever you'd like. And this was the way of Corinth. There's actually an expression in the ancient world that when someone has gone to Corinth and become completely um, absorbed in the immorality of that culture, they were Corinthianized. Someone became part of this culture. And it's, it's actually got some real similarities to Los Angeles culture. I, I've been amazed as, we, as we've preached through 1 Corinthians. I knew this was true. It was actually part of the motive for preaching through 1 Corinthians, that there is such a similarity between Corinthian culture and Southern California culture. people were coming and going all the time in Corinth like they are here. People were about superficial impressions like they are here. People were about succeeding and making uh, prosperous gain financially like they are here. People were about the lusts of the flesh and expressing their feelings and desires however they wanted, just like in Southern California. So many similarities here. And it was said of the Greco-Roman world regarding sex. We keep mistresses for pleasure, concubines for daily use, but wives, in order to produce children legitimately and to have a trustworthy guardian of our domestic property. Wow. But there's another quotation describing Christians from the early church that's just beautiful. They have a common table but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They are so different. Are we? Are we so different? Are we as different as the believers in the early church were recognized to be, the ones who wouldn't cast away their babies if they didn't, Uh, fulfill their ideals, the ones who had a common table. They shared their food and their homes and their possessions with others freely. But they kept the marriage bed pure. And they were radically different than the norm. Radically different than the common ways of thinking and talking and acting. Are you okay with being different? Do you actually love being different than a world that is spinning its wheels going nowhere? 
do you love the difference of God's ways? Well, I pray that for you. We are so easily enamored with the world and its ways and its attractions that are so fleeting. Do you love being different? We're called to be so radically different. But it's so easy to slip into the normal ways. It seems that they had these slogans that Paul's contradicting here. I won't be dominated by anything. Food's meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And Paul corrects this. And God will destroy both. One and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Never. Never, exclamation point. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For just as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm not completely sure what's, what's going on here with this sinning against your own body. I think of lots of other sins, but he, this is clearly putting sexual sin on a depth. It's making us understand it at a depth that says there's something deep and profound about your body and soul and your sexuality is to be expressed in a way that doesn't damage your body and soul in the process. There is a deep cost for sexual immorality that in some ways is deeper than other kinds of immorality. Now again, this, this isn't, this, I, I would say sexual immorality isn't the, the supreme sin, but... It's grounded in the supreme sin. And that is self-deification. I decide for myself who I am, what I do, how I do it. I answer only to myself. That is the problem of human sin. And when you apply that to the expression of our sexuality as men and women, it has led to grievous, tragic, destructive results for all of human history ever since Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. And so we have got to step back and say, Lord, how have I been influenced by this? Because this church and we are inclined to respond to the culture in regard to sexual immorality the same way the Corinthians wrongly responded to it in one of two very different ways. The first was to look no different than the culture to be just as sexually immoral, immoral as the culture. And that's what we find in chapter five, verse one, right? It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. So they both have what you could call syncretism. The, the, the cultural anti-God ways of being are invading the church. But then they are, have people in the church who are thinking, okay, if we need to be so different and it's such a problem, let's, let's just view sex as bad and to be avoided at all costs. And that's where we see it going in chapter 7, verse 1. 
Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they actually wrote him asking questions. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? They're thinking complete abstinence. Sex gets us in trouble, so let's just dispense of it. And the church has always had this problem, either just unbridled license, we're all saved, cheap grace, or no, no, we, we gotta rein this in, and it becomes legalistic, burdensome, joy-killing, denying the gift God gives us mentality. God says he's given us all things for us to enjoy. Everything in creation is given to us to enjoy. But then Satan twists it and distorts it and messes it up and gets us thinking we get to make it up for ourselves of how it should be and how it should look, and it's deadly. And so we don't want to either go to the cheap grace or the legalism reactions to this. We need to go to a Christian view of the body and of reality and of sex as a good gift from God intended to be expressed between a man and a woman in marriage for the good of others and the glory of God. That's what it's for. If you don't have a definition of what sex is or what it's for, it will end up just like it is in our culture, animalistic, completely driven by the current feeling or mood or desire or cultural mores. Instead of backing up and saying, no, Lord, what is your design? What is your intention for us as embodied souls that are sexual beings? And I I want to say that this idea, and we haven't done a great job with this through the centuries as Christians, he just haven't. Origen, the, the early church father, thought this, a, a solution to his, his besetting sin of lust would be solved by castrating himself. That's, that's an extreme result of this battle. The other Christians have just given in to the culture, and we've got to do better. We've got to be different. And I will argue that this idea that Christians have a negative view of sex, that, that we don't think it's a good thing, and that it should probably be avoided... Is, is completely counter to the truth the Bible teaches. I believe the Christian view of the body and of sex is the highest you will ever find. We don't have a low view of sex and the body. We have an incredibly high one, and we don't want to settle for anything but that high and lofty goal for the body. And that's what we read in this passage. We see such a different view. Listen to Anthony Thistleton. The Bible, far from devaluing sex, was far ahead of the first century in its cultural assumptions in perceiving the sexual act as one of intimacy and self-commitment that involves the whole person and not merely the manipulation of some peripheral function of the body. And these common slogans and cliches and ways of thinking and ways of talking were diverting God's people and are so often diverting us today from God's good and blessed and glorious ways. And so we don't want to get into this how far is too far mentality. Paul corrects that right away. And he says, oh, we're not saved by works, but then live so you keep asking the question, what is the best way to live? What's the most God-honoring way to live? What's the way to live to edify and bless others the most? Some, many of you have heard me say this. Your job in dating is to date in such a way that so when she breaks up with you, you get invited to her wedding. That's the goal in dating. And hopefully her new husband will come over to you and say, thank you for dating my new wife. She's more like Jesus because she hung out with you and she's more ready to be a great wife. 
See, that's a radically different way of dating than we tend to. And we've got to rethink everything from the ground up. And so, there are three things I want us to think about regarding sex, this issue of sex. One, I want to think about the depth of sex. The d- sex is far deeper than most people realize. Then I want to talk about the danger of sex and then the destination of sex. So the depth, the danger, and the destination. First, the depth. Did you hear what the description of the body and sex is in this passage? It corrects these ideas that we either worship sex or we trivialize it. It's neither incidental or trivial, nor our greatest treasure. And this, this is something for everyone, for married, for single. We are all sexual beings, and we all need to learn from this passage about sex and the body and marriage and marvel at it, rejoice in it, and benefit from it. Even if your job right now is to primarily abstain from sexual uh, intercourse, you're you're still someone who in that act is expressing the worth of Jesus and God's design. This is for everyone. This is a wonderful view of what God has created. Did you see what we heard? So we don't fall into either idolatry or negativity. The body's free, it's not dominated, verse 12. Boy, do we need to hear this. You're free. If If you're a new creature in Christ, you are not held captive by your desires, by your temptations, by your inclinations. You're not enslaved to those anymore. And we need to hear this because we know that sin feels very natural at times. It comes very naturally, very easily, very instinctively. I certainly know that. And not just sexual immorality, but in all kinds of immorality in my life. I know how easily I sin. I sin really easily. It comes very naturally to me. But then do I say, so I'm stuck. I'm imprisoned. I've got no option. I've got no choice. I've just got to stay here. You are never in bondage to your sin, to your desires if they're sinful, to your inclinations, your temptations. You are not in bondage to your genetics or some uh, predisposition you may have to something. It's good to be aware of those things so you know what you're up against, but please don't ever think if you're a child of God, you have any master but Jesus. Sin has no mastery over you. You are free in Christ from the sin that used to hold you captive, but you're not anymore being held captive. Jesus is your new master. And so we are free. And we are for the Lord. Verse 13. We're for him. He's for us. We're for him. We belong to him. We belong to Jesus. We'll get to this later. Our bodies, everything you are and everything you have, is created to live forever. Oh, this body will go in the ground when it dies, and so will yours, but Jesus has promised it's going to be resurrected. There's an eternal destiny for your body as well as your soul. There's an eternal reality here. That's that's what it says in verse 14. The body and soul have a united reality, and so does 
so do two people who have sex. There's a uniting. And the body and the soul that God makes us to be in new creation is a temple of the Lord. We're told that we are the dwelling place of God now. In verse 13, uh, verse 19, we're the temple of the Lord. And we belong to God. And he bought us to make this true. And we, in our bodies, with our souls, are able to glorify God with our lives. That's why the Bible says whether eating or drinking, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All of it, everything belongs to God. And so we have got to develop a proper view of the body. Before we talk about sex, we've got to talk about uh, the thing that's having sex, right? The body, the mind, the soul, all you are. The Bible does make a distinction between body and soul, but it puts a massive emphasis on the unity of the body and soul. I think very often we tend to over-spiritualize our spirituality. We tend to think spiritual growth is something that happens almost independent of the body. But that's not how God made us, and that's not how we're going to spend eternity. And that's not how God, the Son, came to represent us as some spirit being. No, we're body and soul created by God in this way, and we've got to have a really good understanding of the body, that it's a gift from God. Oh, it's suffering under the curse, for sure. But it'll be freed from that curse one day. And in the meantime, we've got to value the bodies God has given us, that they are united. The emphasis in the Bible is on a unity of the body and soul. And we've got to have a very physical understanding of spirituality. Now, tragically, the body and soul are separated in death. But that's a tragedy, and that's not the end. God's work for us is not finished until the body and soul are wonderfully reunited in resurrection. You know, probably one of the theological, technical inaccuracies I hear most is when someone dies and someone says, I know right now my grandmother is no longer in that wheelchair and she's running around and dancing on her new legs. And I never say it, but I kind of want to say, actually, not yet. She's with the Lord, but she is waiting to get her body with the rest of us. When the dead in Christ shall rise, and we will rise and have our resurrected bodies. And there's this tragic state now between death and resurrection, but there is coming a day when we will be raised imperishable and immortal Reunited, And so our view of how our eternal state will be needs to be informed now in our understanding of the body and the soul. Do you realize how embodied we are? It's an incredibly important realization. We are embodied creatures. And so we have a holistic, unified, very good body understanding the soul. We have this because God creates us, body and soul, and says we're very good. So we're, before he buys us back out of sin, we're very good. <clears throat> the incarnation, God becomes a human being right down to an embodied human being. <clears throat> Shows us how great the, soul, the, the body is. In redemption, he buys us with a price, and in resurrection, this all is true. The physical world is very good, declared so by God. And you are knitted together in your mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made from the beginning. And we need to realize, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis says, that whatever our bodies do affects our souls. 
We've got to realize that the state of our souls is affected by what we do with our bodies. And the state of our souls affects our bodies. It works in both ways. It's amazing the physical effects of internal strife and stress. We can lose our hair and get sweaty palms and and have, have an ulcer because of emotional and psychological and spiritual realities. We've got to see ourselves in in this biblical way of body and soul intended to beautifully work together and affected by the state of each other. Just look at some of these passages that we tend to take so poetically. Oh, before we do that, Heidelberg Catechism puts it perfectly. I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, both life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the all the power of the devil. That summarizes our passage beautifully this morning. But look at these passages where we find this embodied expression of spiritual worship realities. Listen how physical David's experience of God is. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now he's feeling physical thirst. Let me give you, where's my, oh, I got water somewhere. Oh, there it is. No, you won't. Oh. Uh, well, you could have given it a little more overhand effort there, Trev. Uh, hmm. I should have let Laura throw it. There we go. What was I saying? I was thirsty. <laughs> Did you plant that? That's just great. I think God, I think he actually did that. I think God did that. Um, he's actually thirsty. And his physical thirst is making him think about his, his um, the spiritual thirst. But they're connected. They're, they're utterly connected. So what does he do? His flesh faints for God. That's not just a spiritual thing. So what does he say? I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. With his eyes, he looks. This is not just some spiritual, poetic way of thinking. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I'll, I'll use my lips. I'll use my mouth to praise you. I won't just keep it internal. I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. We grow spiritually in bodies, using our bodies. And what we do with our bodies affects our souls. And the state of our souls affects our bodies. And we need to steward both well. Look at Proverbs 15.30. This is not, I don't think, just metaphorical, poetic ways of thinking. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. It's amazing. It's amazing. We have an old dog who's, we think he's 12. But he acts like a puppy when my wife comes home. Not me, just my wife. I walk in, he's like, oh, you? But Donna, he acts like a puppy. He has a physical response to his love for my wife, right? It's good God refreshes the bones. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. We have got to take our body seriously. 
We have got to realize that what we do with our eyes, what we do with our mouths, what we do with our hands and our feet and our sexual organs and our stomachs and our brains and all that comes with that, it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. So the next time you're on your computer and you're tempted to look at something that you know isn't according to God's way, say, this hand I'm about to do this with doesn't belong to me. When are you going to use your mouth to tear somebody down and not edify? Say, this mouth doesn't belong to me. It's not mine to use however I see fit. These eyes don't belong to me. They belong to the one who made these eyes. Astoundingly made these eyes. My mind, what I use it for, what I think about, what I dwell on. My mind belongs to God. My brain belongs to God. It all belongs to him. What do I do with food and my mouth and my stomach? Is it all his? It's all his. We've got to realize that we belong to God and we've got to have a very embodied understanding of this. And I just want to say, in the context of worship, I want to encourage you to get your body engaged. I don't believe your soul can really move toward God if your body is receding from him. I don't think you can be active toward God when your body is screaming passivity. I am so tremendously helped when I'm feeling proud when I get on my knees. It's really hard to feel proud like this. And even harder like this. And so our bodies actually have an effect on our souls. If I'm in worship just like this, it, I'm telling you, it's just not going to be the same than when I lift my hands to the Lord. When I engage my body, we've got such passive bodies and faces. I have a friend who battled depression for years, and I say to him, brother, I know you don't have control over your feelings, but you know what you do have control over? These muscles right here. So when your son walks through the door, you use him to smile. He needs the smile of a father, and whether you feel like it or not isn't really the question. Smile at your son. I know you don't feel like leading family devotions, but you know what you have control over? Your feet and your hands to walk over to the shelf and get the Bible and open it and read it to your family. You have control of that. And I'm not saying you feel like it all the time. That's not the point. I think we've got this overinflated idea of authenticity that only does what I feel like in the moment. That's Corinthianized living. It's not biblical living. We do what's right even when we don't feel like it and that's not hypocrisy, it's actually called integrity. And that's what we're being called to this morning in this amazing passage to have embodied understanding of our lives, the very good world he's made. And then would you look at the way the Christian life is described in these passages. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yes, your soul goes along with that, but the emphasis is on bodies. Romans 6, just as you once presented your members, the, the, all the parts of your body, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness, to sanctification. Look at Romans 6. Look how physical this is. Let not sin reign in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present um, yours, uh, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Is that beautiful? Do you hear how embodied these expressions of our growth in our souls are? These things all lead us to need to consider the danger of sin. So that's, that's the, the depth of sin, the design of sin, the definition of sin. Plenty of Ds to go around there. Yeah, but now the danger of sin. What's the danger of sin? Worshiping it, turning it into an idol, thinking your ultimate joy and pleasure and meaning and satisfaction will come through that, which is a very counter-Christian thing to believe, seeing Jesus and the Apostle Paul who's writing this were unmarried. It must not be ultimately about sex. And so we neither trivialize or disregard the importance of sex. It's deep, but we don't make it the ultimate thing. We don't turn it into an idol that we worship. This idolatry and thinking that it can meet your deepest needs. No, it is a deep thing, but it is a thing that points away from itself to the ultimate destination. We can so easily be dominated by it, dishonoring Christ in the process. You know, the sexual revolution has led to tragic twistedness and radical individualism and so-called personal freedom and autonomy that is killing us. It's destroying our society and our families, our families and ourselves because we're misusing God's good gift. You ever see people in the gym or fitness center or weight room completely misusing the machines? Like this dude. Can he, can he point this out to me? It's so good. Check him out. Now, that is not what that's for. I could show him about a dozen exercises he could do with that pulley system there. Uh, but he cho he's choosing to use it in a way that it was not designed to be used. Now, here's what I want to point out. It's a very similar sort of thing to abusing, misusing sex. Sin is pleasurable for a season. Even the misuse of God, God's good gifts has some pleasures that go with it, some benefits. And I bet this guy's getting a pretty good core workout misusing this machine. <laughs> Even though that's not what it's designed for. And he needs to have someone come along and say, let me show you how to get the maximal use out of this machine. But we've got it so twisted. We've not only got sex twisted, we've got sexuality twisted. Because we've been convinced we get to decide for ourselves what we are and how we are to express ourselves. And we're drifting further and further away from God and his ways. And we've got to back up and say, Lord, help us. Help us. Is there any other way Christians are going to be considered more and more backward, weird, bigoted, intolerant, repressed than our sexual ethics? We just got to be okay with that. We actually have to love the, the opportunity to display something radically different. When I was in college, this is how I stood out more than anything else. My, my football buddies, the guy I played football with, thought there was something very wrong with me. 
they, they, they would mess around all the time and it, it, it just fascinated them. But you know what? When they were in trouble, they would come to the guy who actually had some principles and some, some integrity. I got calls years later from guys that I, I, I played football with in college that thought I was nuts to live the way I did. And they'd say, hey, why are you guys getting married at 24? Oh, they'd say. Right, I forgot. You guys don't get to have sex yet. I'd get married too. That's how they would respond, right? It was just amazing to see how different we can be. Let's embrace that. Let's love that. Let's stop saying, oh, I'm, just, I'm gonna seem like such a loser to these people. No, you're gonna seem like somebody who's actually living for something beyond your animal instincts. <laughs> living for something that lasts, that's eternal. It's dangerous. Sin, sexual sin can be deadly. It's made for intimacy. Listen to this quotation from a woman who um, lived, worked in the mu- music industry for years and she said she was a daughter of the sexual revolution and she lived a life of casual sex that her parents actually celebrated with her. But listen to her reflections after decades of living that way. She says, in all the casual sex, there was one thing I learned to fear more than any other. The fear that the sex would be good. Because if it was, and even if I knew in my heart that this relationship wouldn't work, I would still feel as though the act had bonded me with this guy in a deeper way than we had been bonded before. You see, it is in the nature of sex to awaken deep emotions within us, emotions that are unwelcome when one's trying to keep things light. And she describes after sexual encounters And she would feel this bondedness. She said, I knew in the end of the day it was all just play acting. And so did he. We weren't really intimate. It was just a game and the circus had left town. Sex will always leave us feeling empty unless we're certain that we're loved. And that that act is part of a bigger picture. And that we're loved for our whole selves and not just for our bodies. We're loved for our whole selves and not just for our bodies, that's what we're made for. To be loved for our whole selves and to be loved that way in marriage and in sexual expression is just a faint reflection of the kind of love and intimacy and joy and pleasure and fulfillment that all God's people should be experiencing now and in greater degree throughout our lives and ultimately when our husband comes back. and celebrates with a wedding banquet because we were bought with a price. We were bought with a price the way Gomer was bought by Hosea, this godly man who was told to buy his wife back out of prostitution. After he had married her knowingly that she was a prostitute, she left him. And he had to go and bid against all the highest bidders to get his own wife back who had sold herself into sin. And he paid whatever cost it took. And God gives us this amazing historical example in the Old Testament to point us to him who buys us at the greatest possible cost of his son. He sends his son to take our place, to live and to die for us and to rise from the dead. And he puts this amazing claim on our lives that we belong to him. We're not our own. 
He's purchased us. And now the destination of sex is not your wedding night or your married life or your sexual expression in this life. The destination is well beyond this life. It's to that wonderful, glorious wedding that we'll all celebrate. Paul says this to the Corinthians in the second letter. In chapter 11, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I've betrothed you to one husband and I want to present you to him as a pure virgin. That's where we're all heading. I know, look, I'm a sexual sinner and so are you. That's why I have no problem saying that. I know we're all in this together. And I know we all come with all kinds of things that haunt us from our past and and feel like these deep wounds that will never heal. And we come in here maybe battling sin last night or this morning or during this service in our minds. And I want you to know that the greatest lover you will ever meet is named Jesus. And he came and gave his life for you. And there's never been love seen like that before. And that leads to a kind of intimacy and fulfillment and joy that makes all the other false fulfillments seem like idiocy. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, this table for those who've trusted Jesus, if that's not you, oh, I pray you would trust Jesus and turn to him. And maybe this morning or some other time you'll be able to celebrate this with us. But as we take the Lord's Supper together, we are reminding ourselves what we were and have been freed from and who we are now and where we're heading to that great wedding banquet someday. Lord, help us as we continue to seek to see ourselves as yours, bought with a price, uh, pressing on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. Lord, we're not our own. You've purchased us. You made us in the first place. And would you help us to love being yours? Thank you, Lord, that you freed us from the master of sin that we used to be under. But now the master, Jesus, who loves us to death is the one we remember now as we take this table together. Lord, help us to do it with eager hearts and joyful hearts and grateful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.